With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Black Women Be Well family. It's your host, Jennifer Tomlinson. And today's episode is a little bit different. Uh, We are obviously not in the studio because we are dealing with the coronavirus lockdown. So what you are going to listen to or watch if you're watching on YouTube is a video conference between myself and our guest, Dr. Heather Bryson. And the title for today's episode is Sister in Solidarity. If you're quick, you'll notice that the letters um, spell out sis. So, um, you know, sis, sister in solidarity. And it's really just a conversation between a black woman, myself and a white woman, Dr. Heather Bryson. Um, We talk about a lot of things. We start off talking about the history of black and white women working together um, for voting rights, but we really end up having just an authentic and vulnerable conversation between what black women need um, from white women and the work that white women can do to be an ally or an advocate. So um, you need to listen to this if you are a black woman that, like myself, um, struggle with working with white women in different spaces. I think you'll learn a lot. Um, I share my own experiences. And this is really, though, um, very important for white women um, to hear this episode. Um, If you want to do authentic work, if you want to be an ally or an advocate, I think our conversation might enlighten you, um, help you, um, give you some things to think about. So, um, yeah, listen, learn, and be well. Hello, Dr. Bryson. Hey. Welcome to the Black Women Be Well podcast. I'm so glad you got to join us today, considering, you know, that we're in lockdown. Right. Well, thank you so much (laughs) for having me. Um, And to our listeners, um, viewers, some might not know, but Dr. Bryson and I are actually work colleagues. Um, We are both professors at the same institution, and we recently collaborated on a special project called hashtag votes for all. Um, We were actually asked by Rachel Allen, the director of the Peace and Justice Institute to work together um, on this project. And Dr. Bryson served as the historian, really like the expert. Uh, (laughs) We all worked together. We did, but you, you brought your wealth of knowledge um and you were what was the official title like the project manager or coordinator yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um and so um we like you said we worked together um to create these sessions um where we created events in the community and at valencia college um to talk about really the the major point was to drive home the importance of voting And we drove that message hard by talking about um, the history of the women's suffrage movement, because this is a voting year and it is the centennial of um, the women's suffrage movement. And um, we had a really, we just like doing hard stuff, I guess, because we also wanted to talk about (laughs) race and gender as it pertains to black women. Um, And so can you start us off and tell us a little bit about, um, so you created the, the presentation as you would say, the lecture part to teach the, the people in the room um, the history. Could you share with our listeners some of that history of, of what we talked about this, and, and the significant stuff we talked about? Yeah, absolutely. And from here on out, please, you know, Heather rather than Dr. Dr. Bryson. Okay, yeah. All right, I got you. <laughs> um, 
so what I, I mean, in my view, and I think that this was such a collective effort, as you know, I made that presentation three or four times and gathered feedback and tweaked it. Um, but from my view, what we're trying to do is really tell the history of women's suffrage um, from, you know, including black women in that movement because they belong there. They were part of that history. But so often when we talk about women's rights, we're really talking about white women's rights. Mm -hmm. And we're telling the story of how white women fought for their own rights. And so one of the aspects of this project is to incorporate black women into the story and to, to put them where they belong in the history of the fight for suffrage. As well, I think we're also trying to connect um, and it's, you know, the, the current term is fragility, but sort of the fragility of white manhood at the turn of the century um, because they're fighting against women's suffrage, but they're also fighting against this rising power of the black community. And by rising power, I mean economic power, political power. Mm -hmm. We, in 1920, are at the close of World War One, And so... Um, and so we're linking women's suffrage to also um, the local lynching of July Perry, which took place in Ocoee, Florida, mm -hmm. and the racial massacre that took place in that town on Election Day, 1920. Right. So we're trying to put these two strains together, and they belong together. It's just hard to see the connections. We're trying to put the, the fight for women's suffrage and all of the biracial or multiracial aspects of that alongside um, this racial massacre that takes place on election day. Yeah. And so that's, um, that's been the complex or complex aspect of the work, in my opinion. I mean, do you think that they belong together, these two narratives? Absolutely. And I think that us taking on the project of trying to, to talk about um, the place of black women was a daunting task because people usually don't. We get lumped either into the racial history or the gender history. And so um, you have to talk about it both. You have to talk about the two things that were going on to tell our story because we have footing in each side. And it's very complex. It's very strained. Um, and it's not easy history because um, Black women historically have have been either marginalized by the women's movement or um, the abolitionist movement, and so you know we we it's it's also hard because we you know we've been traumatized a little bit, so it's a difficult conversation to also navigate. But they are relevant because we have to talk. We had to talk about it in order to tell our story because our stories are in both. So they are they are yeah. completely relevant. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that I learned along my research with this, which is you know you know what we call intersectionality. Mm -hmm. um, that black women are talking about that in the 19th century all the way through and i should have assumed that but i didn't i mean mm -hmm. these really astute observations about um oppression both for gender and for race so i've yeah i've really enjoyed the research yeah yeah and i know you and i have talked off um, camera while we were prepping for this and I wanted to tell you and introduce the concept of um, one of like a, a concept of my show this idea of being a sister or a sis a sister in solidarity um, and what that means really is um, are there are there racial allies um, that want to do hard work like you are um, that want to help with the process um, authentically um, and um, and just have those tough conversations and do the tough work. And so for you um, and I working together, I plucked you out of, I, I know I told you this, like, uh, I really feel a connection between us. <laughs> I do too. Because <laughs> there's not a lot of this type of bonding um, 
between black and white women doing the work together because there is that trauma and restoration that still needs to happen. But I did want to just tell you at least that um, you being the first white woman on guest on the show, that you are a sister in solidarity and I, I appreciate you. Yeah. Um, and through your, through your knowledge, you're teaching, but you're also learning through the process. Um, and hopefully, you know, having us show you the perspective, our perspective has just enriched your research even more. Um, oh, it, it really, it really has. And, and through the work with this project, as well as the Truth and Justice Project, I think I've learned more just through conversations and interactions and the feedback that we're getting from these events than I have through so much of my academic research. Mm -hmm. and, and what's so nice, in my opinion, about these interactions as we're planning these events and then my work with the Truth and Justice Project, which became the Alliance for Truth and Justice, is just the honesty. I think that it's really hard to trust um, across racial lines mm -hmm. um, for different reasons. And and I feel as though Rachel and you and I have been able to establish that. And, and that's extended to the group of women that we're working with for these events. Yeah, and let me describe the event for those that are listening. Um, so what we ended up creating was a 20 or 30 minute presentation um, uh, or history story really that Heather goes through in the beginning of the event. Um, and then, Rachel Allen and I um, really were thoughtful about how to facilitate conversation after. So it's not a come sit, watch and leave. Um, and I, that really made, made me feel better type of thing. It's, we realized that the conversations would be difficult and the history is hard and could be re-traumatizing. Um, and we really wanted to drive this concept of um, solidarity and coming together and learning from each other. So after Heather's um, lecture, we created small groups within the spaces um, and did an exercise called Serial Testimony where we learn from each other through stories, um, sharing our stories. And then we also had expert panelists come in and bring in like the academic um, side of it and the expertise. Um, and, and a lot of times the spaces were vastly different. We had student spaces, we had affluent spaces, um, depending on you know which part of the community we were engaged with. Um, and so, like you said, there was real power, I think, in the exchange piece of us being authentic and honest and sharing our stories with each other, because that's where the real, I feel like that's where the real paradigm shift comes when we're authentic and vulnerable enough to share with each other, to learn from each other. I think so too. Um, and, and from the white perspective, which, you know, is of course my perspective, um, I think that you and Rachel have been able to create a space where white women feel okay to admit some truths. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that's rare because it's hard and and I you know I'm not quite sure why it's so hard because those of us who are in the room are really working for racial justice but it's difficult to talk about race. Yeah. It just is. <laughs> and um, and so I've just been so proud of the work that you guys have done because people are talking about it. They're telling hard stories to mm -hmm. complete strangers about yeah. one of the more difficult topics. I think that um, I know from the Black experience or being a Black woman, it's extremely difficult for me to be vulnerable enough to share a story with an F and I'll be honest because this is you know a show of honesty to affluent white women and the fear is always that I'll share this story and it'll be taken like a tool and that's the word I hate being in those type of uncertain spaces where people are like wow thank you for sharing your story I'm going to use it now um and, and what do you that mean and and like use it like how like, I'm going to use your story to help me do better work. And I'm going to tell your story to other people. And, and it's like, that's not, I'm not a tool. My story isn't a tool. Um, I'm more than happy to share my story for you to have an internal shift. 
and that you can share back in a way that I can also use your story as a window for me. But I am not in the business of sharing my story so you can collect and use. So that's that's the fear on my end as a black woman. What I see from white women, I always see this sense of fear coming from a place of just not wanting, and I, I understand it, like just not wanting to be, not to say the wrong thing or be labeled a racist. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you are really honest and say what's actually a thought of yours or a feeling and because your vulnerability could be met with absolutely be met with hostility or immediate judgment. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's exactly the way that's exactly the way that I feel um, nervous about yeah. saying the wrong thing or, or just sh showing a side of my perspective that isn't right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think those two experiences, you being, um, fearful of being used and then from the white perspective, being fearful of being judged or condemned. I think those are two really interesting perspectives because it's, because I think we're acknowledging that the history of whites should be judged. <laughs> and the history of African Americans has been one of, you know, exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that it comes on such a personal level. Wow. That, these histories with us. That is, that is such a good point that you made. Wow. That, you know, I can trace my own insecurity, obviously, throughout history. Right. And then you can do the same. Um, and I don't know that there's enough spaces there where people can honestly just say what they're thinking um, and not, and for you not to be immediately judged by me or in vice versa, not be immediately exploited. Right. There's not enough safe spaces. And I think that's the, 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 the boundary we're facing now is that we don't have enough spaces to really share um, and, and for those things to not immediately happen, you know? Yeah, I would agree. And, and we're talking about people who are invested in this. I mean, which is from my perspective, a small amount of people in this country. And so even with those who are invested in, um, racial restoration and trying to create a better future racially for this country and for one another, um, we're still hitting these boundaries. Yeah. 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 So if, if I was to say, and this is another boundary and really what can create healing in that restoration we talk about for me to say, this is the ways in which I've been exploited and here's how I need to be restored requires someone to say, I admit I did those things and, um, forgive me for, and here's what I'll do. Um, but no one is saying it, <laughs> you know, I'm not sharing and no one, and you know, in, in the fear of not, you know, actually of, of being exploited. And then also no one is, no one is saying the, oh, I, I admit that, that I've, yeah, I admit that historically we have done this and here's what we can do to create equity and to restore. Um, and so. But what's interesting. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. No, no, no. Uh, I just wanted to say the sad thing is, 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 is what we're talking about, the power that women have in democracy and working together, black and white women could be powerful, but we can't, we, we can't come together because those things are still existing, you know, but I know, uh, mm -hmm. I know. And that's exactly, um, I thought a lot about that because of the email that you sent that had sort of this outline of how white women 
and black women or why they should come together right now. And there are so many reasons for that. But as you say, it's, it's a very fraught space. Mm-hmm. And what's also interesting about what you just said is that the onus is really on white women. I mean, it's, you know, what do black women have to do to change the racial dynamic? I don't even know. I mean, (laughs) white women need to change the racial dynamic because we are the ones who are perpetuating um, injustice. Absolutely. And so, you know, I I mean, we don't have, we don't, (laughs) you don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. No, but I should um, say, because you just, you know, I should say, I'm sorry for the ways in which I've taken part in any kind of racial injustice throughout my life, because you're sitting here in front of me saying, you know, white women need to acknowledge and apologize. And so let me, because there have been times where I've heard a racial slur or a statement um, especially in high school and college. And sometimes I would address it and sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would just, you know, not be friends with that person, but not engage them and fight for um, the African-American community. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry. Thank you, Heather. And, you know, and that's what you didn't even have to say that because, um, you know, sitting through your lecture, I know that you already internalized that, um, but it does feel good to hear it. And I can only hope that those that watch this can see the courage that it does take to do something like that. And that there are some instances where you're not immediately met with, um, I mean, you could get met with it, but in this case, you're not met with the well, that's not good enough, or here's some more um, things you need to feel sorry for. Um, And it does take courage. It does take courage to say that. Um, And I think that a lot of white women are just not there yet, but you're at a different place to have that moment with me right now, you know. Well, thank you. But I think, Jennifer, it also takes courage to acknowledge that that's something that you'd like to hear I mean you you know we're and we're talking about this like being vulnerable and um and you've really shown me how to have these conversations and I remember it was either the first or second time that we met and you said to Rachel and I you said I just want white women to stand up for us when we're not around Mm. And I thought, I mean, that was just such an incredibly powerful thing to hear. Because I feel that way about men. Like, mm-hmm. if there's a group of men and somebody says something, you know, that denigrates women, I want a man in that room to address it. Mm-hmm. And so to listen to you say that, I mean, after you left the classroom where we were, I just looked at Rachel and I said, that's, I mean, it was just such a good thing to hear. Um, can we keep... Can we keep, if you don't mind, having this um, moment on uh, as we're recording? Because I, I could share some more, and I feel I feel safe in this space. That I'm not always safe, but I, I do feel safe now. If if we can keep yeah. um, the full conversation going, so some other things that um, I'm very careful about how I phrase because I don't want to come off. Um, you know, we're always archetyped as aggressive or um, we just got too much trauma we can't get over. Um, So I always try to be very careful the way in which I word things. And I think that's another burden Black women um, walk around with that we can't just say what it is that we want, you know? Um, And so I'm going to be honest and say say something. um, And when people talk about forgiveness or an apology, they do it the best way that they can based on how they grew up um, or how they've experienced 
um, saying I'm sorry and forgiving. And so I know people are only coming with what they have. My dad always uses this term. He says, consider the context or consider the source. So whenever I'm hearing something from people, I try to live by that to not immediately judge or be offended. Um, so I always say consider the source because people are going to um, have a forgiving moment based on what they know how to forgive or their childhood experiences. So when, we, when I really talk about restorative forgiveness, it really isn't just an I'm sorry, you know. Um, for me, it, it has to come from a sentence of forgive me for and I'm not having you, I'm not telling you, you need to do this now. I just wanted to share on air what I think a lot of black or a lot of people need when they talk about restorative forgiveness, um, that forgive me for, and for someone to be very specific about what they're asking, because the, I'm sorry is really for you. You know, it's just, it's a personal feeling of I am. It doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't allow me to participate in the process. I can just sit and kind of say thank you or say no thank you. But a forgive me for engages in a conversation. It allows me to say yes, I do or no, I don't. You know, and so I I, I do wish that um, more um, organizations that have been historically uh, prejudiced against black women or had marginalized us. I wish that I could hear that. Forgive us for what we've done specifically X, Y, Z. And that allows me to engage in the process versus not saying anything at all or just saying, no, we're sorry, you know? I think that makes, you know, and in, in hearing that, it's, it's accurate because I just a couple of minutes ago said, I'm sorry. And then you had the instinct to make me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you're exactly right that um, it is about the person who's, who's saying I am yeah. rather than giving any kind of agency other than sort of sympathy mm -hmm. to the, the person that they're speaking with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like if, I feel like if a lot more opportunities for white and black women to have that kind of forgiveness opportunity or, or type of discussion, albeit hard, that's where the, that's where the healing comes from. You know, it allows the other person that's asking for, give, for asking for forgiveness to really um, cathartically work through the, the almost curse, the stuff. And then it allows the, the person receiving it to really process whether or not they're at a place to take it or not and to participate, you know, but we don't have those types of spaces enough to allow black and white women to work through those issues in that way to move forward, you know? Right. I No, we don't have those types of spaces. And I don't um, think that we even have the education or the knowledge to ask what needs to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So you know that my family took part in the Rosewood massacre. Mm -hmm. And and I I can't ask for forgiveness for that because I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean it's it's a, 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 a terrible shame and it is something that I feel guilty about, although I think it's misplaced guilt because mm -hmm. I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. But um, there are other ways that I've participated in perpetuating racial injustice. And it's not just walking away from a bigot in high school or college. It's not educating myself. Um, and it's taking, you know, it's I've just learned so much through studying history mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm aware um, mm -hmm. to some degree of the structures that are in place that have perpetuated white privilege and um, African-American oppression. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I don't even know if white people fully know how much they have to apologize for. <laughs> 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 and so, um, 
And so I think it starts with, with really an education about how, how after reconstruction, how after World War One, how after World War Two, these moments where racial um, equity or equality really sort of could have happened in this country mm -hmm. and how white powers went about shutting those doors yeah. over and over and over and how white people got used to looking the other way. Yeah. And, and that's it. So for the internal work someone has to do to even get to a place to ask for forgiveness, it's difficult and could be a long road. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yes, yes. I think so. You guys have tough work. <laughs> it's, so it's so true. It is yeah. so true. Uh, but I think it's something that's necessary. Absolutely. If if we want to get to a place where the space between white women and black women isn't fraught, where we can really free ourselves, um, you know, psychologically white women can free ourselves to just say this is every way that I've participated and and please forgive me mm -hmm. and and then of course that's you know that's I have something else I want to share with you yeah if you don't mind um when we talk about intersectionality mm -hmm. um and for those that are listening we talk we, we've talked about that in the our last episode with um, Rudy Darden, we defined it, but intersectionality is essentially, you know, the different multicultural selves that make up who we are. So um, for me, a big intersectionality obviously is my race and gender. There are other things that make up who I am. One of those things are my socioeconomic status or my class. And so that is something I had to learn to really, um, be thoughtful and including in my conversations about myself and who I am. Um, I had some tough work uh, when I went to the um, ACEED training last summer. And I, I mean, it was put in my face that I wasn't ready to deal with it, but I dealt with it anyways, that my class as a poor woman, a poor black woman, um, has really shaped who I am and how I engage with other people to a great extent. And I don't acknowledge it enough. People don't like talking about their class or their money. It's just something in America we don't we don't do. We don't talk about money. Um, but it's so it actually is so uh, influential into shaping who we are and how we talk to each other and how we treat each other that we it's so and it's also subconscious we don't realize it. And I think that there's a lot of animosity, honestly. Um, or let me not use that word, there's a lot of um, complexity between um, poor black women and rich white women. It's just, we're in different planets, we speak different languages. And that is something I also struggle with, with is honestly being able to, to bridge that gap. And that is something that I do struggle with. I don't know how to, and I you know it's the work that I'm doing now, but it's something I really do struggle with. And how, um, like what happened in that seed training or, or how do you think that class has informed how you think or how you talk to, um, you know, affluent white uh -huh. I, I realized that um, I am a part of a problem where um, I do not um, demonstrate or showcase what poverty or poor actually looks like because I'm so consumed with trying to make people of those spaces know that I belong in those spaces 
So I'll come off with like the word, like I, I have my coined phrases that I know that I need to say like, oh, I've been to Europe too, or I have a master's, master's degree, or I've read that book too, or I've seen that play. And it helps me f let them know, like, I belong here. Um, I feel valid and, and hopefully that people will listen to me and that I don't feel, I hate that feeling of, you know, like, I don't belong here. I just hate that feeling. And it's my attempt subconsciously to assimilate. And I had no idea because maybe a part of me was ashamed of my own socioeconomic class. You know, I'm trying to um, move up in a hierarchy to make people feel like I belong, but also to make myself feel like I belong. And so rich white women have a distorted view of poverty. They think poor is a homeless person on the street. And I'm like, no, I'm literally right next to you. You have no idea that this is what a poor person looks like. And here are, here is my story and my struggles. And so that was the thing that really shocked me that I'm not, not talking about my economic class. Um, really has prevented some of those conversations to move forward and for white rich white women to really know the stories and the circumstances of poor black women it's like a jennifer it's like a minefield <laughs> i mean i i so the way in which I've experienced something similar is just being in rooms with men mm -hmm. and, um, and just knowing that if something upsets me not to show emotion and, you know, we're, we're fighting against these stereotypes and, and trying to earn access or earn a seat at the table, even though we belong there, we just don't, you know, We've had these lives that have told us that we don't really belong there. And that's one. And you have three. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you're talking about intersectionality. So there, there are only some spaces where I feel like there are minds that I need to avoid. Um, and I can't imagine having to navigate and not only navigate, but you're so conscious of it. Mm -hmm. You're aware of the fact that, yeah, dropping in, I've been to Europe or I read this book or I have an advanced, you know, I have my master's. It's not only are you doing it, but you're aware that you're doing it. I mean, it's your internal work is so admirable. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, <laughs> excuse me. I just... And class is class is another one of those things. And and it's such a shame, in my opinion, in this country that that people who are born without money or don't have a lot of money, um, that they have to fight against these stereotypes when we're living in this extremely um capitalist society yeah. where it should be the opposite. For right. People who have an enormous amount of wealth they should be ashamed of yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, not those who are... Well, what I appreciate about me sharing this a while ago, and this is that concept of windows and mirrors, of, um, you know, and this is that type of sharing that I talked about that I, I really... Um, this is the type of exchange that I appreciate. For me to share my story with you, and then you say to me... I, I um, acknowledge how your story is different. Here's how I also can understand what you're going through. Because um, for white women in, in um, affluent male spaces, you kind of have some empathy, like you understand, but you can also um, step back and realize that um, what I experience around affluent white men, you also experience around me. And... Um, that's that's the type of sharing I like to have. If I if and I and that took a lot of vulnerability for me to share just a while ago. Why you would ask for permission? And that's a whole nother thing for my therapist. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but for me to share that story with you in the hopes that you get it, um, it's my attempt at, of trying to you know walk towards the bridge that people can see hear my story and empathize with me in a way that they'd have um, a light bulb go off or an internal shift, you know? And so I think that, um, 
I just hope more more women, more rich white women, um, can really look at other women and understand um, that our experiences are very different, and that um, uh, they have a clearer picture of what it means to look poor and what what we're doing navigating in their spaces all the time and that consciousness we're always experiencing all the time um in their spaces you know so well it's interesting what's what's interesting is that you described as their spaces well why do the spaces belong to them girl let's talk about it i don't know why did i say that that is um it's it does not feel like my space it feels like a different planet it feels and i it's the anxiety i get when um i have to go into these spaces and the the preparation i do on my way there you know making sure that um my hair looks a certain way my nails are a certain way the things that i would normally wear i don't wear um, I'm very methodical about, do I feel like wearing a head wrap and having a million people ask me, where does that head wrap come from or not? Um, and so it doesn't feel like a place that I belong. Um, I, I don't know how to make it my space. It's an interesting question. Like, how do you turn a space like that into your space or into a space that you feel really comfortable in? Um, and it has everything to do with them doing the work yeah um, them doing the work but also me doing my own work to get out of this um this place of deficiency i'm operating from and coming in with a place of authority and confidence to to want to re to claim spaces i mean to hold my own space i need to do that work too and having the space allows for the authentic conversations to happen I'm not in a I'm not in a headspace at all to be in that room now and be like let's let's talk not you but like whoever right. the you know metaphorical person is yeah let's talk and heal I'm not there yet and I think it has a lot to do with that place is not my space you know I have too many other things of anxiety going on to even try to have a real honest conversation and it makes me think about uh, well I'll talk to you about that. Um, later but it, it yeah what well i was gonna say you remember how much i struggled with coming up with a authentic um story to share uh to model the serial testimony and i could not do it in that space for some reason i couldn't do it in um on east campus and i think it has a lot to do with oh i don't belong here so i can't be honest here it wasn't until we got on my campus that I felt even remotely comfortable to actually share an actual true story. And I think that has a lot to do with it. That's, it, I'm sure it does. And I'm, I am the opposite. I feel so much more comfortable um, in spaces where I not don't belong, but aren't familiar to me. Mm. Because I, and, and forever, I get nervous. I mean, I was nervous about this exchange because I know you and I admire you and I respect you. Whereas if I was doing a podcast with somebody I didn't really know, <laughs> I wouldn't have been nervous. <laughs> oh gosh, you were nervous about me. I, yeah, I, you know, I'm prone okay. to nerve. Um, yeah, because you yeah. were killing it on, um... Vanessa Eccles show like you were oh <laughs> spit fire I didn't even I was like I don't this lady is have a genius have you listened to that have yeah no oh, I haven't because I don't you know I get nervous you're like you're amazing oh thank you so much <laughs> that's really kind of you to say thank you I think you're amazing um I know we're pushing um about 45 minutes um, I do want to get through some of these other questions. Yeah. This conversation steered off into a great place. I, I'm just glad that we got to capture what um, a, a semi-tough conversation looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully this can inspire others to not be so nervous about um, 
you know, having, being honest with a, 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 a woman that's different from your race, you know? So I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Um, let's see. We have a question here. Um, what type of advice do you have? Oh, this is my question. What type of advice do you have for white women um, to do that kind of tough work we talked about in order to help support black women or be an advocate, advocate or an ally? So I, this was the most difficult question, largely yeah. because, um, you know, I don't know that I am in any position to offer advice. I just, what I've learned um, from working with you and um, and Rachel in this work. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the hashtag votes for all and working with um, the Alliance for Truth and Justice and the Truth and Justice Project is number one, to listen. Mm -hmm. um, number two, and I think this is the case for all women, to just have the instinct to believe mm -hmm. other women when they talk, just believe them. Yeah. If they're talking about their experience, if they're talking about their worldview, just believe them. Um, and number three, something that I've learned um, is, is to not take everything so personally. Mm. So when I'm sitting around, and, and it's always, we're always talking about race in these groups where I'm around women of color, um, that when someone says, you know, this is what white women do, or this is what white people do. And they make a generalization about white people or white women. I've, I have the instinct to say, wait, 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 it's, you yeah. know, more complicated than that. Or, you know, we're not all one person walking around. Um, but I think that that statement is just not necessary. If they really believed that I wouldn't be invited to sit at a table with right, them to talk about right. racial justice. Right. And so my advice would be to listen and to just, you know, not have to, and this is really my advice to myself, not have to, you know, it's not about me. It's yeah. not about what, um, you know, where I see the complexity and how I don't want to be stereotyped. I mean, you know, sort of give me a break and, and white women need to talk less and not be so sensitive. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that's great advice. And, you know, it's just so natural for us to talk in general terms. Um, and so that to immediately personalize it, it's like you said, it's just not, it might not be necessary in that moment. Because um, right. it's so, and it happens all the time. And why sometimes I don't even speak up because I know if I say what I'm going to say, I might get met with a, well, in my family or I, you know, that, or I get met with, well, I also experienced that in this way that is, you know, and then they start talking about something that's not even what I was talking about. And it's like, you know, just listen, not everything needs to be explained or rationalized or, um, you know, let me, let me create a rationale for why what you said is a bit inaccurate, you know? Right. Um, and that, I mean, thank you for that advice because we really need it. Uh, <laughs> and to your point earlier, you did say to, you know, the importance of education um, and that really where it starts to just learning the social constructs we exist in, the institutions we exist in, and how they've, you know, created a framework in the way that we perceive the world. Right. And how we participate in those. And, and I, and, you know, we get used to, I don't know. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so 
how would you categorize yourself? Do you feel like you're an ally or an advocate or both or where, um, how would, or even how would you define those terms for the work that you're doing? So I did a little bit of research into those terms, yes. the <laughs> racial ally and racial advocate, because I've never identified as either just, um, so as an ally, or I, I would like to see myself as an ally and I looked up ways to be a good racial ally since we um, talked about this podcast. And the first um, one or the first piece of advice was to listen, to mm -hmm. like not feel as though my voice is the one in the room that should be listened to. So to be more receptive um, and to vote. Yeah. That was another... Um, and then also to acknowledge, to honestly acknowledge the way that I've benefited from these social systems where, you know, white skin has held more power in mm -hmm. this country and, and how I've benefited from that. And um, yes, I've worked hard in my life, but also... I've been given just an enormous amount of privilege, uh, largely through my race, but also um, my class to some extent. And those two things are, of course, um, mm -hmm. married in so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, so to acknowledge privilege, to listen, and to vote with the community in mind and not just my family in mind. Mm -hmm. I think those are good ways to be a racial ally the second in terms of racial advocate the way i understand that is more sort of political activism and i've done some of that um working with the community groups and um trying to work locally to acknowledge the the racial injustice that's taken place here with the massacre with the lynching but also and i i want to say this on this show I think so often we talk about how black men have been lynched and that's really sort of the 20th century white crime. And it is to some extent, mm -hmm. but to another extent, what we so rarely acknowledge is how um, sexual violence yes. has worked between the white community to the black community. So largely white on black um, rape. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a historian, Danielle McGuire, who I read her book, it's called At the Dark End of the Street, um, that really talks about just how, you know, we, I think about this crime as something that took place during the era of slavery. But of course, it kept going. Yeah. And so we have this really visual crime of, um, of lynching and I think there's a lot of community work being done with that but the same amount of community work isn't being done to um talk about sexual violence that's a great point yeah and so that um in terms of advocacy I would like to see more of that um here in central Florida because there's an enormous amount of sexual mm -hmm. violence and violence against the trans community that mm -hmm. is mm -hmm just under acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. And um, wh when I talked about advocacy with uh, Rudy Darden in my last episode, um, for, for him, I was sharing how important it is for um, Black men to know when to speak up on our behalf and when not, because we don't always need someone to talk for us because we are looking for uh, agency and spaces to even have a voice. Um, but something like... Um, acknowledging and referencing and bringing up that kind of a topic, I think is so important because um, like you said, where it's just not acknowledged, no one is talking about it. Um, and we don't talk about it. Well, I can't even speak. I just know from a, a, my own personal experience, um, 
the the sexual violence or the sexualization of black female bodies at a young age is just such a hush hush thing that it's even the way in which I internalize it like you just don't talk about it you don't acknowledge your own trauma um and so for for you to want to pick that up based on your research and you know the history that you've studied in your work to talk about it I just want to say thank you for that because I mean you just you made me think of some things in this conversation right now and um I I think that's just really it's it's needed um and so if you see your work moving forward and helping um talking about that I just want to say thank you because we do need people to talk about it we do yeah we do and it's something yeah talk about the hush hush it's just Mm -hmm. been and yeah yeah all right, so we can wrap up. Um, I do want to just ask, because um, I did like this question, um, and we'll just end on this one. Okay. Uh, my intern, Lion, he sent you some questions. Um, I think, yeah, um, and this is one of his. He said, what are the books that shaped your philosophies? Do you want to share with our listeners some of your books? So I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I, at the dark end of the street, which I didn't send, but um, Danielle McGuire's book okay. really, I, I just hadn't thought about the prevalence of white on black rape. So that was excellent. Um, and it's, what'd you say, the dark? At the dark end of the street. And I'm almost okay. positive that's the exact. Her name is Danielle okay. McGuire. Okay. Um, so that helped shape, I guess, if we're talking about advocacy. But, um, I just, you know, to be honest with you, um, so much of my research and so much of my interest in racial justice has to do with the fact that my grandparents, and specifically my mother's father, my grandfather, who was, um, I, you know, who was, from my understanding, racist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not, you know, from my mother's account, he didn't stand out as racist in the 40s or 50s, but from my perspective, he was. Mm-hmm. And he was, to me and to my family, such an intelligent, thoughtful um interesting, funny man. And so I started researching white masculinity um, and its intersections with white supremacy really to understand his generation Mm. Um, and to kind of complicate it. And, And one book that really informed the way I thought about it is a history by Jason Sokol, S-O-K-O-L, that's called There Goes My Everything. And it talks about um, sort of how white men and, and how white communities sort of understood their place. And then, um, and of course they were terrible racists, but they were also just uh, people who weren't paying attention and and who benefited from this so so i sent that that's one of the books that i sent to um your intern because as i thought about it he's the one who really made me jason sokol is the one who really made me think that i had something with my research at looking at white masculinity and white supremacy and how those things completely um overlapped in the middle of the 20th century but then other but it, you know I don't read that many histories even though I'm a historian I like when I left grad <laughs> when I left grad school I was just like I'm um, yes fiction. <laughs> right yes so I do I mean you know the regular the regular fiction that I think a lot of us enjoy but you know I I love Hemingway I loved um Camus I you know I just I like people talking about food and drink and other experiences yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. sun also rises Hemingway. i loved that Love yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> i loved that book yeah but i, I haven't i mean have you reread any of his i haven't gone back to them i haven't i haven't read anything since like 2011 and it's been a while yeah yeah 
And then there's Arundhati Roy, the god of small things, which talks about um, a brother and sister in India. That's one of my very favorite books. Oh, yeah, there's, okay. Mm, nice. Yeah. Hey, podcast fam. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black Woman Be Well. Make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, You can find all of our links at blackwomanbewell.com. Also, if you thought this conversation was really beneficial, um, you know, I know our show is called Black Woman Be Well, but it's not just for black women. Um, It's just our stories and our perspective. So if you know someone that is an ally for black women or an advocate for black women, please share this episode with them. Um, This is all about sharing and learning and growing together. So Make sure you follow us and make sure you're telling all your friends and colleagues and family about us and per usual, be well. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.